0: You are now listening to British Murders, the True Cry podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 6th episode of Season 9. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. This week's fact is inspired by a recent trip to B&Q. Did you know that it can take up to 36 months for a pineapple plant to develop fruit? That's far too long, isn't it Seeb's waiting three years to eat a pineapple. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day When life hands you pineapples, you best make pina coladas. That's from an unknown source, but I thought it was relevant considering the fact I just told you. This week's case was suggested via Instagram message by Katie Lily Harris. We're back in the Cambridgeshire city of Peterborough this week, a place we visited back in season three when we looked at the Joanna Dennehy case. I gave a couple of historical tidbits about the city back then, but here are five more quickfire facts. Number one, the world's first mini-roundabout was built in the city in 1969. Number two, a local legend called Michael Ross, whom the locals know better as Nobby the Tramp, was often seen sitting in the home he made for himself out of an old wooden bus shelter on Undal Road. Nobby passed away in March 2020, aged 74. Number three, a couple of James Bond movies were filmed in the city. Scenes from GoldenEye and Octopussy were filmed at various places, including Neen Valley Railway. Number four, the city of Peterborough is named after St. Peter. The city's coat of arms, which contains cross keys and the words upon this rock, heavily reflects this. And number five, Peterborough is home to one of the largest concentrations of Italian immigrants in the UK. This is mainly a result of labour recruitment in the 1950s by the London Brick Company in the southern Italian regions of Apulia and Campania. As of the 2021 census, the estimated population of Peterborough was 215,700. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. There have been 69 murder convictions in the UK where the body of the victim has not been found. Investigations such as those are referred to as no-body murder investigations, and they're a rather rare occurrence, although they have a high conviction rate of around 86%. Back in November, we looked at the murder of April Jones by Mark Bridger. April's body has still not been found. We also briefly touched upon the Muriel Mackay case in December when writer Simon Farker was a guest on the show. That was one of the earliest examples in the UK of a trial and conviction in a murder case without a body. This week's case is, sadly, no different. Let's start from the beginning, as we always do here on British Murders. Bernadette Walker was born circa 2003, based on the fact she was 17 during this story's main timeline, the summer of 2020. Known to her friends and family as B, Bernadette was a creative young woman who not only had a penchant for art, but also dabbled in photography, something she was extremely talented at. Bernadette's photography skills led to her studying the subject at Peterborough College, an institution located just a mile east of her home at Century Square. Described by her older brother Anthony as being someone who was initially shy when meeting new people, the art enthusiast was said to have had ambitions of pursuing a career in the field, perhaps with a move to America forming a part of said plan. Bernadette was well respected by her tutors and peers at the college, and once she overcame her initial shyness, her bubbly and fun true self came to the surface. Like most teenagers, and let's face it, most adults nowadays, Bernadette was often glued to her phone, She had all the usual apps, Instagram, Facebook and the like, and the only reason I'm mentioning this is that her phone plays a huge part in our story as we progress through it. Living with Bernadette at Century Square was her mum, Sarah Walker, and her dad, Scott Walker, although it's reported in multiple sources that Scott was not Bernadette's biological father. Despite that, she referred to him as Dad all the same. Let me now provide you with a bit of background about Scott, this week's main villain. Scott had been in trouble with the law on multiple occasions before the events of this story, with one of his earliest convictions coming in 2002 when he was arrested for harassment. He'll have been roughly 32 at the time. Six years after that, Scott received a caution for breaching a non-molestation order relating to one of his previous partners, i.e. not Sarah. His next arrest came in 2012 after he assaulted a boy, the age of whom is unknown, which prompted a social services investigation, which to me indicates the boy was related to him in some way. Scott and his family were regularly on the radar of Peterborough City Council between 2010 and 2013, but they have made no further comment as to the extent of their concerns. Anthony has said that Scott also turned his aggressive tendencies to his family members. When Anthony was around 18 or 19, Scott punched him in the stomach. Attacking someone of Anthony's age wasn't as common, though, as Scott liked to assault younger people due to the little likelihood of them telling someone the full extent of what had happened. Anthony said, He used to hit them and do all sorts. It was crazy. He'd try and emotionally abuse us, and I hate to say this because it makes me seem weak, but it did work on me a lot of the time. We were working as hard as we could to get him out of the house, but he was very persistent on staying and wouldn't leave. Sarah Walker was also subject to her partner's violent outbursts. Scott once held a knife to her arm, a scene witnessed by a young Anthony who unknowingly walked in on the situation. He quickly attempted to call the police, but Scott soon snatched the phone from Anthony and hung it up. Sarah has also since testified that Scott once put a pillow over a baby's face on two separate occasions, whilst also laying his hands around the neck of another boy. Sarah also told police detectives that Scott had raped her previously, but every time officers visited the property to conduct a welfare check, Scott was always looming around the corner, making it difficult for Sarah to truthfully explain what had gone on. In May 2020, two months before the events of our story, an unnamed third party reported Scott for domestic abuse and rape offences, but the alleged victim of the attacks didn't disclose anything, so nothing seems to have come of it. Scott even threatened to slit the throat of the family dog on one occasion and vowed to murder a man called Christopher O'Connell. More on him shortly. Despite all of the aforementioned incidents, Cambridgeshire police have said it felt there was no need to put any safeguarding measures in place regarding Scott's behaviour, even after his convictions in this week's story came to light. If we quickly go back to Christopher O'Connell, he was Sarah Walker's new partner whom she'd been seeing for a short while. Essentially, Sarah and Scott's relationship had irreparably broken down, so much so that Sarah felt confident enough to begin a new relationship with Chris. Having said that, Scott remained living in the home at Century Square in what surely was an incredibly awkward situation. It must have been a very toxic atmosphere for everyone involved, especially the kids. For a quick bit of context before we get into our main timeline, Scott Walker had reportedly set up CCTV cameras in the family's home bathroom. His reasoning was that Bernadette would often hide sweets inside a toilet roll tube and eat them on sneaky toilet visits. Scott simply wanted to catch her in the act. That was his defence when later questioned as to why the cameras had been set up. The truth is likely far more sinister. Scott has denied having set the cameras up to secretly watch Bernadette during her most private moments, and he also denied having transferred the cameras' images to his laptop before later deleting them. July 16th, 2020 was the day that Bernadette made the incredibly brave decision to open up to her mum about the sexual abuse she had suffered over several years at the hands of the man she called Dad. I can't imagine how much courage that must have taken from Bernadette, but here's the kicker. Sarah didn't believe a word of it. The mother and daughter pair spoke long into the night, but Sarah vehemently refused to accept what Bernadette was telling her. The following evening, Bernadette decided to pack a rucksack and head for her paternal grandparents' house. Inside the rucksack were spare clothes, a book, headphones, makeup and a notebook. I'll circle back to that last item as the story progresses. Bill and Julie Walker lived at Jukesmead, one of three residential parks owned by Whiteley Park Homes. It's located around three miles northwest of Century Square. Arriving there at around 10pm, Bernadette didn't say much to her grandparents as to what had caused her to be so upset. They didn't pry, and a few hours later, their granddaughter made her way to bed. Crucially, Bernadette's phone wasn't with her when she made the trip to Jukesmead. It remained at Century Square. We know this because it pinged off a cell tower near the family home at 3.15am the following morning. We all know that teenagers don't like to go anywhere without their phones, so it's perhaps a revealing insight into just how much the conversation with her mum had affected Bernadette. She was so distraught that having her phone with her was likely the last thing on her mind. Or, maybe leaving her phone at home was a way of preventing any contact with her parents. Scott called Julie, his stepmom, later that morning and arranged to collect Bernadette. Leaving Century Square at ten twenty-five a.m., Scott didn't head straight for Jukesmead. He arrived at some nearby garages he had access to, which are located on the route to Jukesmead. Some sources state the garages were on Montague Road, but they were in fact just off Montague Road on Churchfield Road. Arriving there just after half ten, Scott was back in the car on his way to collect Bernadette by ten forty. Ten minutes later, he was at his parents' house and remained there for just over 15 minutes, leaving with Bernadette at 11.06am. She would never be seen again. An interesting point to note here is that while Scott was out doing goodness knows what on his way to collect Bernadette, there was activity registered on the teenager's phone, which you'll remember was back at Century Square. A successful login was made to Bernadette's Gmail account by her mum, Sarah, who also logged into her daughter's Facebook account at 10.48 that morning. That information is worth remembering when deciding how much Sarah knew about what would go on to happen to her daughter and how much premeditation was involved. I must warn you that a lot of this episode focuses on low-level details and timestamps. I don't usually get this granular with details, but they're vital when it comes to telling this story and giving it context. There was an 8-minute window between 11.16 and 11.23am when Scott Walker's phone pinged off cell sites in the area of Gunthorpe, which isn't exactly on the way from Jukesmead to Century Square. You have to head east a couple of miles, well out of your way to reach Gunthorpe. What happened during those 8 minutes is known only to Scott, but GPS data from his phone showed that at one point he stopped the car got out and walked 410 steps before returning to the vehicle and continuing his journey. Where Bernadette was at that point is, again, known only to Scott, although he would claim that he pulled the car over to confront Bernadette about the sexual abuse allegations she'd made to her mum two nights prior. As Scott rolled a cigarette, Bernadette supposedly refused to talk about it and opened the car door before getting out and walking off down an alley. Scott claimed to have attempted to follow her, but lost her en route. The reason for the detour, so said Scott, was that he wanted to go to McDonald's, even though Bernadette didn't. But that doesn't quite add up. The three McDonald's restaurants closest to Gunthorpe are on Lincoln Road, close to the garages on Churchfield Road, Padholm Road East, two miles south of Century Square, and Bourges Boulevard, a mile and a half southwest of Century Square. None of those are remotely near Gunthorpe. As Century Square is, they are all in the completely opposite direction. At 11.23am, Scott's phone disconnected from the network. It would remain disconnected for 1 hour and 31 minutes. Sarah attempted to call Scott during that time, and she also made a call attempt to Bill and Julie Walker, but each of her attempts was unsuccessful. Once his phone reconnected to the network at 12.54pm, i.e. he turned it back on, Scott's first call was to Sarah. It lasted 9 minutes and 16 seconds. What was said during that call is known only to those two, but think of how much one can say in just under 10 minutes. It's believed that call was when Scott confessed to having killed Bernadette, followed by the pair conceiving a cover-up plan. With their plan agreed upon, Sarah first put it in motion by messaging her new partner, Chris O'Connell, and informing him that Bernadette had run away after her dad picked her up. They were sticking to the Bernadette escaping down an alley story clearly. Sarah, who was at home at Century Square, then logged into Bernadette's Gmail account on the teenager's phone and changed the login password. The new password contained information pertaining to Chris's name and date of birth. Activity on Bernadette's Instagram account was also registered that afternoon, including a message being sent to one of her friends that read, Hi, it's me. I ran away. I don't want to be in trouble for lying. That message was sent by Sarah, as were the following text messages sent from Bernadette's phone to Sarah's. Both phones were placed at Century Square at the time. Just picture Sarah sitting there with both phones sending the following fake exchange. Bernadette, can you forgive me? Sarah, of course I can darling, please come home. Bernadette, will I be in lots of trouble? Sarah, no, we can forget this happened. Bernadette, really? Sarah, we need to talk about it. I just want a cuddle. Another password change was then made, this time to Bernadette's Hotmail account, with Sarah's phone being used to validate the change. Once more, the new password included details pertaining to Chris for some reason. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. The next call between Scott and Sarah occurred around 2pm, with the pair speaking for just under four minutes before the call disconnected. Likely a signal error, the call reconnected seven seconds later and lasted a further twelve and a half minutes. On his way back to Century Square, Scott stopped off at the garages on Churchfield Road where he remained for ten minutes. It's thought that he may have been storing Bernadette's body there during that time whilst figuring out what to do with it. That's merely a logical conjecture, of course. At 6.16pm that evening, Scott and Sarah left Century Square with not only their phones, but Bernadette's too. The couple purchased a top-up voucher for phone credit 10 minutes into their journey and used it on their daughter's phone. While sitting in the car outside the shop, Scott called his own phone from Bernadette's and answered, leaving it connected for half a minute. That was at 6.30pm. 24 minutes later, Bernadette's phone disconnected from the network. Crucially, Scott and Sarah's phones remained connected and were seen pinging off cell sites in various areas of Peterborough until they finally arrived back at the garages on Churchfield Road at 10.48pm, where they remained for 20 minutes. Logically, that evening was likely when they disposed of Bernadette's body and returned to the garages to clean up and remove any potentially contaminating evidence. I'd love to know whether you agree with me or not, or if you think differently. The pair headed home after leaving the garages, but by half two the following morning, we're on July 19th now if you're struggling to keep score, Scott was on the move again, with the garages being his intended destination. Arriving there at 2.47am, his phone was clocked as leaving there at 3am. Scott then made his way back to Gunthorpe. More clean-up work, perhaps? His phone remained connected to one cell site in Gunthorpe for over two hours before he was on the move again shortly before half five. He then returned to the garages where he remained for half an hour or so, before heading to Mackey's for some brekkie. That afternoon, a message from Bernadette's phone was sent to Sarah's that read, I don't know what to do, but I will be soon, when I am ready. I really want us to delete messages too. I will tell you more later. Scott would later admit to having sent that message. Sarah replied an hour later by saying, OK, I've deleted everything. What do you want to tell me? Kiss. Bernadette's phone was switched off soon after that message from her mum was received, leaving her friends unable to attempt contact with her. The early hours of the following day saw more nefarious activity taking place from Scott and Sarah. They initially visited the lockup garages at half twelve in the morning and remained there for five minutes. Scott's Mercedes was then clocked by an AMPR camera on the A16, on which the pair were headed northbound, away from Peterborough. Their intended destination was a remote area in the village of Cubitt, Lincolnshire, 13 miles north of their home at Century Square. Both of their phones pinged the cell site at Crowland Water Tower next to the River Welland at 12.42am. It took me ages to find the water tower on Google Maps as it's not labelled, which speaks volumes as to how remote it is. Interestingly, investigating officers would later note that Scott's car had no record of travelling anywhere near those roads since October 2019, nine months earlier. Within two minutes of pinging the Water Tower cell site, Scott and Sarah's phones disconnected from their networks. Ten minutes later, Bernadette's phone connected to a cell site in Cubby and continued to ping off various cell sites, indicating it was on the move. Several messages were then sent from Bernadette's phone, with the first being sent to Sarah's phone. It read, For God's sake, what the hell, Mum? Stop messaging my friends. I swear, you tell anyone else I lied, I will tell them I don't have my phone. I'll tell everyone Dad has got it. I'm okay. Some messages were then sent to Bernadette's friends from her phone, including one message that read, You can leave me alone too. Another exchange saw one of Bernadette's friends pleading with who she thought was her mate to come home but the person sending the messages was actually Sarah, who bluntly asked the friend to leave her alone. The last ever message sent from Bernadette's phone was at 1.28am that morning. It read, I don't know what to do. Keeping my options open. K-bye. Her phone was then turned off and has since never been reconnected to the network. It's also never been found. Just three minutes after Bernadette's phone was disconnected, Sarah's phone managed to track her walking 33 steps over a five-minute period before re-entering the car and being driven away. In all likelihood, that was when Sarah disposed of Bernadette's phone. Scott and Sarah's phones eventually reconnected to their networks at 3.03 and 4.08am respectively. Both handsets were at Century Square when they did. The first time Sarah Walker contacted the police to report her daughter as missing was in the very early hours of July 21st, three days after she was last seen leaving her grandparents' house at Jukesmead. A day later, officers visited Century Square and made their first search of Bernadette's bedroom. Scott was in the room with them while they searched, and one officer at the scene recalled how he appeared distraught at the fact his partner was now seeing another man. Mentioning the sexual abuse allegations, Scott said that Bernadette would likely now be embarrassed having made false allegations and probably said it to try and get him out of the house. That night, Sarah posted an appeal for information to help find Bernadette on Facebook. In it, Sarah spoke directly to Bernadette, begging the teenager to return home because her grandad, who suffered from dementia, had taken a turn for the worse. It's not clear whether that's true or not, but the fact she sent that message at all is terrifying, given her actions over the previous few evenings. Following the Facebook post was a series of online searches, including My daughter is missing. Can we search for where her phone was last used? And I think my partner knows where my missing child is. Did Sarah genuinely not know where Bernadette was? Was she of the genuine belief that she'd run away? If so, was her using Bernadette's phone merely a stall tactic in the hope she came home soon? Those are all unanswered questions for you to ponder, as only Sarah, and of course Scott, know the truth. By September 2020, there was still no sign of Bernadette Walker. None of her friends and family had heard from her since July 18th. Officers paid Scott another visit on September 8th and asked him to go over what had happened on the morning Bernadette supposedly ran away. His memory of the event was sketchy at best, so much so that he couldn't remember the precise location where she'd got out of the car. That's surely something a dad would remember, no? Scott also seemed far more concerned about Sarah's new relationship than with Bernadette's disappearance. Two days later, officers arrived at Century Square and arrested Scott Walker on suspicion of kidnapping and the sexual assault of a minor. A further charge, suspicion of murder, was added the following day. Sarah Walker was subsequently arrested on September twelfth. Scott was interviewed for a total of three days and offered nothing but no comment responses to all questions asked of him. Soon after, a murder investigation named Operation Penshaw was launched by detectives from the Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Hertfordshire Major Crime Unit, despite there being no body to speak of. One of the investigating detectives said, Due to the length of time Bernadette has been missing and concerned she may have come to some harm, we made the decision to declare this a murder investigation yesterday morning. Whilst we hope we do find Bernadette alive and well, there is every possibility this may not be the case. Therefore, my team and I will do everything possible to find out what has happened to her and bring any offenders to justice. Scott's garages on Churchfield Road were searched over the following few days with one crucial item being recovered, Bernadette's rucksack. I mentioned earlier that one of the items was more significant than others, her notebook. A note was found in said notebook that read, Told my mum about dad and the abuse. She called me a liar and threatened to kill me if I told police. What kind of parent wouldn't believe their daughter? It's fine. I'm going to pretend it's all okay until I leave home. Then I will block them out of my life. If I was brave enough, I probably would have already left or killed myself. She's referring to July 16th, when she confessed to her mum that her dad had been sexually abusing her for years. With Scott and Sarah's GPS movements recovered, searches extended to open land areas in and around Cubitt, but nothing could be found. Detectives reached out to Bernadette's GP, dentist and optician, but none of them had heard from her. Local mental health crisis teams were contacted, as were the city's hospitals, but the result was the same. There was no phone or social media use after July 20th, nor had anyone at Peterborough College heard from Bernadette. She appeared to have vanished off the face of the earth. Searches continued throughout September, with dive teams searching the River Welland near the water tower and forensic teams continuing to search the lock-up garages. Fields in Gunthorpe were also searched, but officers found nothing of interest. One police spokesperson said, We continued to search in a number of different areas, including multiple abandoned, vacant or derelict buildings in Peterborough and some large open areas in Gunthorpe. By November, police were no further in figuring out what had happened to Bernadette. Meanwhile, Scott and Sarah were being held on remand at HMP Peterborough, the UK's only prison holding both male and female inmates, although naturally the two are kept separate at all times. They appeared via video link at the Old Bailey, where they were informed of their charges. Scott was charged with one count of murder in respect of Bernadette, and four counts of perverting the course of justice. If anyone says it sounds like I'm saying court instead of course, it's just how I say it. Let it go. Two of the perverting the course of justice charges related to Scott and Sarah believing Bernadette was dead, while the other two related to them believing she was alive. Sarah was charged with the same four counts of perverting the course of justice, but had her murder charge dropped. The search for Bernadette Walker came to an end in December, five months after she went missing. A police spokesperson said, While there may not be any active searches at present, the investigation is very much live, and police are working with partner agencies who are assisting in the search for Bernadette. If any new information comes forward, searches will recommence, so if anyone listening knows anything, please don't hesitate to contact the police ASAP. By March 2021, Scott had pleaded not guilty to his murder charge and not guilty to all four of his perverting the course of justice charges. Sarah, on the other hand, pleaded guilty to two of her perverting the course of justice charges as, despite her actions, she claimed she didn't know or believe that Bernadette was dead. The trial took place at Cambridge Crown Court between June and July, lasting six weeks. Case prosecutor Lisa Wild in QC opened proceedings by saying, Since Bernadette disappeared, she has not used her phone or social media accounts. She has had no access to money or banking. She has not been seen at any hospital or surgery. No one who loved her has heard from her since that day. She is presumed dead. It is likely her body was disposed of, probably in the countryside, in the hours that followed the killing. To this day, neither defendant accepts she is dead. The defence's main argument was that there was no proof that Bernadette was dead, and they refused to accept or concede that she was. When the jury returned with their verdicts on July 26th, they unanimously found Scott Walker guilty of Bernadette's murder and of two counts of perverting the course of justice, the ones relating to knowing or believing she was dead. Sarah Walker refused to give evidence at the trial and was also found guilty of the same two counts of perverting the course of justice. Even though she'd pleaded guilty to the other two perverting the course of justice charges, it was decided that she would only be sentenced on the two she was found guilty of by the jury as they were the more serious charges of the two sets of two. Detective Inspector Justine Jenkins said after the verdicts, I am pleased we have been able to get justice for B after what has been such tragic circumstances. We may never know the truth about what Scott did and why, but we know B had made allegations of abuse against him. My plea to anyone who may have been subjected to abuse is to speak to us. B thought she could confide in her own mother, who should have been able to protect her, but instead she met a tragic end. Sentencing for Scott and Sarah came in September, with Mrs Justice McGowan handing Scott a life sentence with a minimum term of 32 years and Sarah a six-year jail sentence. With a parole eligibility date of September 2nd, 2053, Scott Walker will be 81 when he's able to apply for it. Since being imprisoned, he has refused to speak to anyone, including detectives. And to this day, Bernadette Walker's body has yet to be found. And that was the story of British murderer Scott Walker. Thanks again Katie Lily Harris for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. If you're listening on Spotify, there's a section at the bottom of the episode where you can let me know what you thought about this case. Last week's episode received 13 responses, which was a pleasant surprise. Thank you for those. I've got just a cheeky three reviews to read out this week. Dee left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Extremely Easy Listening. It reads, Recently found British Murders and I'm currently binging all episodes. I'm up to mid-season five. The length of each episode is just right. Love the jingle for daddy facts. So cute. Stuart's amount of waffle is not too long and so far have not skipped forward in any episode. Mark Lewis left a five-star review on britishmurders.com titled Absolutely Brilliant. It reads, I listen to your podcast while at work and it really passes the time for me. Keep up the good work. And finally, I don't know how to say this, Lered, 3 left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts USA titled Is Stuart Arrogant? It reads, I'm such a simp for a UK accent, I honestly don't know. Has Stuart been talking down to his lowly Americans this whole time? I suppose ignorance is bliss, because I'll happily digest as much belittling as Stuart dares to dish out. I enjoy this podcast so much, with the only caveat being there's a finite amount, and eventually I'll run out. Poor me. Every reviewer praises his straightforward approach to storytelling, but I lament the episode's not being longer. Thank God for the waffling. Anywho, the arrogant question was just in response to a review you read that really tickled you and I had to comment on it. I'm saddened when listeners don't respond well to hosts. Not for the sake of the host, mind you. I'm sure they can take it. But for the listener's sake, who obviously isn't getting my level of enjoyment out of the podcast. I've listened to my share of True Crime podcasts, many of which I've unsubscribed to. But Stuart, yours is a keeper. Thanks and keep up the amazing work. Thank you, D, Mark and... Hilar- 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 you'll have to let me know how to say that for leaving the show such lovely reviews suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com you can also leave star ratings on Spotify I'm almost at 666 reviews on there which is delightfully devilish Seymour if you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee you can find the links for each on my website Please continue emailing case suggestion to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. When I do eventually get round to covering the case, you'll get a cheeky shout out for your trouble. And that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.